Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Joining me in a bit is Justin Jock, the author of Revolutionary Mathematics. We'll be speaking about algorithms and the statistical models on which financial systems are based around and other uh, models of digital control. But first, before we get started, it would be great if you could go to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and get on our mailing list. That way you're updated every time there's a new episode. You can also donate to the show by hitting the red button at the top right corner of the screen and also like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Analysis Hyphen News, or to whatever other podcast service that you're using. Stay with us and we'll be back in a bit with Justin Jock. Joining me now is Justin Jock. He's the author of Revolutionary Mathematics artificial intelligence, statistics, and the logic of capitalism. He's also a visualization librarian at the University of Michigan. Thanks so much for joining me, Justin. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, it just so happens that it was an algorithm which took me to your book and a recommendation algorithm. So it's pretty fitting that we're speaking about algorithms and statistical models today. Your book essentially looks at different statistical models and argues that there's a sort of um, metaphysical or philosophical assumption in a lot of these models that they are essentially trying to maximize a certain payoff or reward. And this actually lends itself to capitalist accumulation and to the financialization of the markets that we've been seeing over the past few decades. So why don't we start with what actually compelled you to write this book in the first place? Sure. I think... The, the thing that compelled me was there was a sort of growing literature about algorithms and especially algorithmic bias, uh, like Safia Noble's book, Algorithms of Oppression, and Virginia Eubanks has also written um, about this. And, and I found a lot of this work really compelling and super interesting, but I, I, it struck me that one piece that was missing was sort of how these algorithms get their power, how the decisions sort of are made, and then the larger questions of political economy in which they, they function. And also thinking about the ways that algorithms sort of pick up in on what capital had already been doing. I mean, there are all these systems for sorting workers, for sorting people, and treating them in, in biased ways in terms of their access to capital, their access to job, their access to housing. Um, and so in so much as, as a lot of these books and arguments about algorithmic bias were showing how algorithms were repeating earlier forms of bias, I thought that that there, there kind of needed to be an, an extra step to think about the ways in which, you know, that we couldn't just fix the problem at the level of the algorithm, that it also was was part of this much larger social problem. Yeah, because, I mean, we can observe different, you know, instances of that in the world that we live in. For example, populations being controlled by digital systems, such as, you know, workers, immigrants, even inmates who have been newly released, they're still sort of controlled by um, these digital systems. And there's one instance in your book, which you describe, which is great. Well, I mean, quite frustrating if you're in that position, but, you know, think of yourself as being at an airport and going to the gate of an airport and essentially asking the worker there to help you change your flight. And then they say, sorry, I can't override the system. I can't do anything for you. So that's an instance in which we've entrusted, you know, so much power to these computer systems. Right. Yeah. And I think that that one of the really important parts about it is that so these systems are making these decisions, 
But then there are these much larger apparatuses of, of sort of juridical power that are being used to enforce the decisions. And then also all of the, the sort of mechanisms of auditing them or protesting decisions are now being sort of stripped away. Um, one of the examples that, that happened around the time that I started thinking about the book, and I think was really informative for me, um, was this, uh, it was called MIDAS, the Michigan uh, Data Automation System. And it was this system, uh, and part of what it did was try to detect, automatically detect unemployment fraud. So people who lost their job would get unemployment insurance, and, and if people were scamming the system, it was supposed to cut them off. And it turned out this software, I think they spent a couple million dollars on it. It turned out this software just didn't work at all. And, and it was tens of thousands of people lost their unemployment insurance because the system, you know, said that they were committing fraud. They had gotten rid of all of the people who were, were doing these, making these decisions manually and all the people who could audit it. A lot of these people, it took five, six years in order to get the, get the money back. They had to go through the court systems. Um, you know, and if you're on unemployment insurance, you can't wait five, six years for the, the money that you need. And so I think it's a really interesting example because it's not even a question of the algorithm being like biased or anything like that. It's just completely, it was just flat out wrong. Um, and the, the implications were, were horrendous for the people who were affected. So thinking, you know, both about the algorithms, but then also all of the, the sort of political and economic power uh, behind those, those decisions and the ways in which they affect people's lives. Well, someone like me, you know, who only has a cursory understanding of statistics, I think your book really helped me understand the different models that are, are being used. So you speak about frequentist statistical models as well as Bayesian statistical models. Um, and you essentially argue that there really isn't a thing that is probability. I mean, aside from the complexities of quantum mechanics, where something could be maybe both 30% probability of whatever happening as well as seven or sixty percent at the same time, whereas you know outside of that realm, that's that's not really possible. And you argue that probability is not really a thing. We we set these sort of parameters based on what knowledge we have and and what we've observed, and we input that into these models. And and what it gives back to us is not you know, a, a, I don't know, like a, a scientific truth. It is something that's interpreted within the context of these models. So maybe you can speak about you know, frequentist versus Bayesian statistical models and the differences between the two. Yeah, so that's a, a central uh, component of the book. And, and it, it really does, you know, sort of start with this, uh, this kind of this insight that it is in, in some ways counterintuitive, but I think also very intuitive once you sort of start thinking about it. And it's exactly like you said, that there is in, in sort of the real material world, there's no such thing as, as probability like it, you know, you flip a coin and it lands on heads or tails, it doesn't 50% land on heads or 50% land on tails. Um, and so, so probability really is, I, th I think, definitionally a metaphysical category. It's, it's a sort of an intellectual supplement to the world that we've created in part because of a, out of a lack of knowledge, right? It's because you flip a coin and, you know, we don't, we, you could probably model physically the air currents and exactly, you know, the forces and, and figure out how it lands. But normally when you flip a coin, you, you don't know. And so probability is, is kind of a, this this additional supplement that we we add to the world in order to deal with situations that we that we don't know and so in the in the book i, I trace this sort of shift from frequentist statistics to uh, bayesian statistics and and there's there are a lot of 
sort of important components to it, but to, to really kind of try to boil it down to its, its essence. In, in frequentist statistics, which were very sort of popular in the, the beginning of the 20th century up until about the 70s or 80s, but it's still, this is really what's taught in an introduction to statistics class. The way that, that probability is given a, a, a certain objectivity, it, it's called the, the frequentist statistics refers to itself as, as an objective theory of probability. The idea is that you take a long run of something and then you measure the frequency. So, so you can't, in, under sort of a, a really rigorous frequentist framework, you can't assign a probability to an individual coin flip. You have to have a series of, let's say, 100, 1,000, 10,000 coin flips. And if half of them are heads and half of them are tails, then the probability is is 50% heads, 50% um, tails. So it it is it's objective in the sense that it's a, a measurement of a frequency, but it still it it in a certain sense has a lot of subjectivity to it because you have to define what's called the reference class. You have to say, okay, these are the the you know it's only when I'm flipping a coin on these days that I'm considering this specific coin or you know this specific model for for making weather predictions. Um, you still have to sort of define the experiment and, and what counts as as, a, as an instance. Um, conversely, Bayesian uh, statistics, which has become sort of more popular in the 80s, although it, it really traces back to the 19th century, um, is a subjective theory of probability. So instead of having it be based on this, you know, this long run frequency, it's really based on my individual knowledge of the of the situation. And it, it, the mathematics of Bayesian statistics allow you to sort of have your guess. So like, I think that this is a fair coin. I think it's a 50% chance of heads. And then as I observe more flips, I there's the, the mathematical formula called Bayes' theorem um, that allows me to update. So if, you know, if, if I see 10 heads in a, in a row, I might think, okay, maybe this coin is actually biased towards heads and, and using Bayes' theorem, you can kind of update from your, your probability. And, and so what it allows you to do is start with a subjective theory of probability. And as you observe more and more uh, instances or get more and more data, then the idea is that your probability should become more objective because it's based less on your sort of prior ideas of what things were and more on the data that you've observed. And then I think, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I, I think one of the important things to note is that even though it's it's subjective, it's actually much more easy to automate than frequentist probability because frequentist probability requires, you know, sort of setting up an experiment and you can't assign a probability to an individual event. Like say you go to a website and it, it wants to give you an ad. Um, there's not a sort of properly frequentist way that you could say, okay, I think there's a 2% chance you're going to click on this ad. Whereas because Bayesian statistics are subjective, you can assign a probability to an individual event, like you click on an, an ad, and you can automate the mathematics of, of getting more data. So it's subjective in the sense that, that it's from a specific sort of uh, epistemic point based on the data that's observed, but it's not necessarily subjective in the sense that it's like a person, it has to be a person. Um, the math can be done quite rigorously so that it can be automated. Well, not to get too into the details of Bayesian statistical models, but I think it was founded by um, a priest or a theologian, uh, Thomas Bayes, who, I mean, I think this is, you know, maybe halfway through your, your book where you're speaking about Bayes and how he obviously believed in God. And so there's this subjective element, but it still has a notion of this, I guess, objective truth, which is a deity as being, you know, the thing which determines everything. And, and you sort of explain how 
this deity can then be replaced by the market or the truth of the market. Could you explain how a lot of the models that we have and say, you know, like uh, uh, the the trading of, of um, you know, derivatives and, and different sort of financialization models and very, very fast automated ways of trading are based on this assumption that the market is, you know, the absolute truth, which is, I don't know, allocating things in a very specific way and in a way which is rational and objective? Sure. So there, I think there are a number of components kind of at play there, but, but absolutely. So it it starts, Bayesian statistics is is kind of invented by Reverend Thomas Bayes in the 19th century. Um, And, and one of the, the sort of the, the, problems that you run into as soon as you accept a subjective theory of probability is that it's really difficult to um, to evaluate whether you're right or wrong, right? Because if I say there's a, a 60% chance of it raining tomorrow and it doesn't rain, you know, you can't say, oh, no, you were wrong. You said there was a 60% chance of rain because the 40% chance that there's not rain covers that. As long as someone doesn't say, you know, there's a 100% chance or a 0% chance, it's, it's really not an individual event is not an individual probability is not falsifiable. Um, but there are different ways that you can sort of arrive at the probability calculus and, and some of the rules of probability, right? Like, for example, that, uh, you know, an event and like not having that event should add up to to one, right? So if I say there's a 60% chance of it raining, then there should be a 40% chance of it not raining tomorrow. Um, and so so Bayes' theorem that, that Thomas Bayes uh, sort of discovered is it's it's sort of based on this regularity and this ability to apply the probability calculus to you know to to events, um, and so for him he says look because there's this regularity and it follows these mathematical laws, for me that's actually that's proof that that God exists because there's this this regularity to the to the universe. Um, but in the 20th century, uh, such arguments tend not to hold uh, as much scientific water as they did in the 19th century. And so there are, there are a variety of ways that, that people sort of get to the probability calculus. But one of the, uh, the sort of enduring ways that people keep coming back to uh, is what's called the Dutch book argument. And basically, a Dutch book is a gambling situation where uh, no matter you, you uh, wager a certain amount of money on different bets, and no matter what happens, you lose money. So, you know, there are three horses in a race and you bet maybe on two of them or, uh, you know, on all three of them in various proportions. And if you convert your probabilities to betting contracts, so if you, you know, if you think that a coin is uh, two thirds likely to land on heads and one third on tail, then you would bet, you know, two to one odds uh, on, on a betting contract. And you can, you can derive the entire probability calculus out of the desire not to have a, a Dutch book made against you. So if you, you know, if you think that, or there's a 60% chance of rain and then a 70% chance of it not raining, uh, you can convert those to contracts and show how if it rains or doesn't rain, uh, you would still end up losing money. And so in this, this kind of deeply metaphysical way, I think you see with the Dutch book argument that, uh, that the sort of the entire edifice of of probability and statistics is founded on on this idea of the market and on the exchange of contracts. So I think there's this this kind of internal uh, metaphysical relationship between statistics and and the market, or at least political economy. 
Um, but then also what I, I argue in the book is that there's a, a sort of an external one as well, that these systems are kind of constantly making decisions um, in, in a world where they are, you know, developed by corporations and the government, and they're constantly tied back into ways to, to make money, which becomes the sort of the important uh, uh, way that truth is determined. And so one of the, or two of the examples that I talk about in the book are uh, uh, Volkswagen's uh, uh, diesel scandal, where they had cars that would detect if they were being tested by the Environmental Protection Agency or other uh, similar agencies, and then they would change how they functioned uh, based on, you know, if they were being tested. Um, and the other one is Project Grayball, which was a, a project by Uber to detect if, if uh, uh, if someone opening the app was a governmental regulator and then they would try to hide all of the, the rides from them. And so I, I think you, you can see in these examples that, that these sort of these modes of producing knowledge, uh, both internally in terms of the Dutch book, but then externally are embedded in these systems of political economy and are, are optimized not for some sort of, you know, transcendent idea of truth, but for the ability to, to sort of produce the most value uh, for the owners and, and creators of these algorithms. Well, I definitely want to speak about the epistemological foundations of these models, epistemology being, you know, the theory of knowledge and how we come to know something and what sort of knowledge is produced. But first, I think it's worthwhile to explain how your book is so deeply based on Karl Marx's capital and his conception of objectification. So Marx says that social relations are essentially negotiated through objects and there's this sort of false consciousness which develops because you tend to treat these relations as being immutable or fixed or as you know something that's uh, natural in a sense and you use this interpretation of objectification whereas some other people focus on objectification as being you know the sort of dehumanization of the worker but I really like the way you used uh, or you deployed objectification in your book. So why don't we speak about how you developed um, your analysis using Marx's objectification? Yeah, so for me, what what I find really interesting about this sort of this theory of objectification, especially as it's developed um, you know, in the first volume of, of Capital, is that, that what I read Marx talking about is, is essentially the way that we let objects think for us and, and sort of remember us, I think he says, you know, uh, manage our affairs behind our, our backs. And so, you know, you think you write, like you go and you buy a cup of coffee and you're at the store and the, the sign says it's $2 or $3 or whatever for a cup of coffee. It becomes this sort of this objective fact that you have to respond to, not this sort of, you know, it's, it's not something where you can say, oh no, I think, you know, for me, it's only worth a dollar fifty or something like that, and 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 we, uh, you know, we have this sort of this implicit idea that like the the two dollars is somehow inherent in the in the coffee itself, and so, so in a lot of ways, I think what what Marx is talking about in terms of, of objectification is this sort of almost like uh, proto-algorithmicity, uh, I guess we could could say. Um, and, you know, that I think there's a way in which uh, at, at one point in, in the book, I, I say that like um, capitalism is the kind of the original machine learning, right? It's this way, this kind of this complex social network that tracks prices and, and value and labor um, and presents it when we go to the store as the price of, of bread or, or you know, pay rent to a landlord or something. Um, 
like that. And so I'm really interested in the ways in which probability does something similar, that it kind of becomes this sort of this objectified thing that, and, and algorithms too, uh, that keep track of our affairs for us. So, you know, you can think of um, uh, credit scores as, as a thing that does this, right? That, you know, that even though it's this totally made up thing, um, the idea that, you know, that, oh, you should uh, get a credit card or a mortgage and it'll improve your credit score. It becomes this sort of this objective game that we get caught in, right? That like, it's not a, it's, it's metaphysical. It's not a real thing, but we know that certain actions will improve our credit score, which increase our, our access to capital uh, or to credit at least. Uh, and other things will hurt our credit score. So even, you know, and, and you can say, okay, this is ridiculous. I don't want to play this game. Uh, but if you, you know, if you want to get a mortgage or, or a car loan or something like that, you, you get sort of caught in the, the objective conditions of, of credit scores. Um, and, and so, so I think there's something really interesting about the ways in which these, these algorithms and capital think for us. And, and one thing that, that one, argument that I try to make in the book that I think is really important is that is that I'm not like a po the argument isn't that Bayesian statistics are like these bad bourgeois statistics and that we need to come up with a like a new system of doing statistics. I think in a lot of ways that the Bayesian revolution and the Bayesian discovery is an incredibly important one because it, it shows the ways in which all of these knowledge this knowledge production is this sort of objectifying force and one that's tied to political economy that we can't, you know, that there's not a way that we can like go back to this, uh, this sort of this uh, enlightenment idea of transcendent truth or something like that. Well, you also speak about uh, Moishe Postone, who is a historical Marxist, and he speaks about abstract domination and, and real abstraction. So essentially, these models are, are taking, you know, observed phenomena or, or certain assumptions and feeding them into a model and then you you have your output. But I'm wondering, I mean, someone who's not a statistician myself, like, do these models really reflect the materiality of the world? Or is there any way to make them reflect the world in, in, a, in a more, I don't want to say accurate way, because, you know, truth is something that's always mediated. But is there a way to make these models more reflective of material conditions and you know inequalities. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, and, and I think it's kind of a, a complicated one in a certain sense because I I do think you know the my argument isn't like like I was saying that these are are sort of like bad inaccurate uh, descriptions of the world. I think they actually are incredibly powerful tools that do describe the you know, the real material conditions, but but precisely in a way that, that I think you can get from Postone or people like Sandra Thel, um, that that we live in this world of of these real abstractions, right? That like that credit scores and value are these very even though they're not, you know, material things per se, right? Like Mark says that, you know, that there's no there's no advances in chemistry that will ever allow us to like find the value in in cloth or something like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that that cloth or coffee or or a house doesn't have value in a in a real sense. It's not a you know it's not just a fiction that we can we can um, wish away or that there's some you know advances in in uh, in either economic bourgeois economics or Marxism that will ever like figure out the real value of a, a cup of coffee or something like that. But these are, they're, they're socially produced, they're, they're abstractions, 
um, but they are very real in a in a in a certain kind of material materialist sense. Um, but but the the problem, and I, and I think this was what you were getting at, is that they reflect a world that's fundamentally biased and unjust and and exploitative. And so I think it's it's a very difficult thing. And you know, and, and uh, I think I would have been more concrete in the end about what the path forward was if, if I knew exactly what uh, what the path forward is. But I, I think it, it has to be, you know, we have to address these things on sort of both ends of the spectrum, right? We have to address the sort of the, the kind of concrete outcomes, the injustices that these systems produce, um, the sort of, you know, the, the ways in which they're racist and sexist and xenophobic. Um, but then we also have to attack and, and reconceptualize the, the very sort of uh, metaphysical value relations that allow these systems to to produce and reproduce and so you know it's it's a question of of, uh, of both you know discussing and dealing with the outcomes of them but then also trying to reimagine uh, the entire system of political economy and how we uh, you know distribute goods and and, and organize labor and, and the social production of of, um, of these these real abstractions well, why don't we stay on this for a bit? Because there's something in your book which was, you know, um, very interesting. I mean, you're saying that you're not trying to de-objectify these statistical models. You're not saying that we should do away with technology, whereas, you know, some people want some return to, you know, not having any technology because all technology is bad, according to their view. But I just, I, I wonder how... To what extent that is actually possible? Like, if these statistical models have a certain way of extract of abstraction and potentially misrepresenting certain things in the world, then how is it that we can still use them for emancipatory or equitable ends? Is it just a, a you know changing what the aim is? Is it you know instead of saying okay, we're using this model to see what the payout is to ensure that, you know, there's a certain amount of profit maximization. But if the aim is then some sort of, you know, redistribution of wealth or something that's equitable, can you just plug that aim or, or change change the aim of these models? Or are they going to sort of, do they have, I don't want to say a mind, a mind of their own because I don't think artificial intelligence is really intelligent. It doesn't have a psyche based on what we put into these models. But do you think it's, actually possible for this for these sorts of models which are based on abstraction to actually be of service to an emancipatory project yeah so i think there there are two levels to to which i think it's important to answer that question and so the first is i think it, it at some point it's it's impossible to step outside of abstractions and and these sort of you know forms of, of objectification that we're always in, involved in the world is, through various abstractions. We're, we're never actually like dealing with the sort of, you know, just the whatever, just the soil under our feet. It's always, you know, it's always functioning as as land or as, uh, you know, as, as something potentially productive or some, some form of, of knowledge. Um, so that even outside of capitalism, I think that there are always forms of abstraction, forms of objectification. And so it's a question of, of sort of what, uh, not of, of objectification being in and of itself, but precisely what it is that's objectified and the types of abstractions and, and what uh, sort of reality, uh, real abstractions they end up producing. 
Um, but specifically to the, with that sort of in mind, specifically to the question of, of technology, for, for me, I, I sort of fall in the middle, right? Like I don't, I don't see myself as a technological determinist. I don't think that, that the sort of the outcome of what these tools and systems do is, is wholly predetermined. Um, but I'm also not on the end of the spectrum where I think, okay, it's just a tool and it's, it's totally up to you how to use it. I think it's somewhere in between that there is, there's a lot of sort of freedom in how we use these tools. They can be put to different ends. Um, but they do carry certain kind of, uh, they sort of smuggle with them certain metaphysical understandings of, of the world and ways of operating. And so we can't simply um, choose not to, to, you know, we can't just say like, oh, I'm going to take AI and do something totally different and have it be completely removed from the market because I, I think we're sort of uh, uh, stuck in a, in a certain sense in these kind of these metaphysical systems. So I think it can, they can be put towards emancipatory projects that we can, you know, try to use them, think of other ways to, you know, to, to, to weight them, to think about evaluating the outcomes, like, especially if we think about the implication on, you know, in terms of climate or something like that, um, that those can, those models can be used to calculate those things, but it's always difficult because both internally, they kind of have this sort of this market driven, uh, uh, metaphysics but then also i mean like a lot of emancipatory projects they exist within a world that's predominantly capitalist and there's a tendency for capitalism to subsume these things and and continually kind of eat them up and you know and, and reconfigure them uh in ways that that continue to build these systems of domination and exploitation um so that's maybe the long answer but the short answer is is yes i think they can be used for emancipatory projects uh, but there's no guarantee that any project, despite, you know, just because of our, our will that it should be emancipatory is going to succeed in, in being emancipatory. And there's, of course, always the issue of what Mark Fisher terms capitalist realism. You know, we're, the way that we view things is always sort of limited by the capitalist confines in which we live. So it's really hard to think beyond um, those parameters. But I also wanted to speak about something that's a bit... Um, you know, something that's been in the news recently and this idea of, you know, the Google search engine always giving you the best results. I think that's been problematized recently where sometimes like the search results that you get are kind of random or not accurate. And, you know, some people argue that that's a result of monopolization. You know, Google has uh, a huge or has, you know, they've monopolized that sec sector of the market. So there's no competition. And so they don't need to optimize or improve their their product. But aside from that and looking at the big picture, is it possible that some of these AI machine learning systems are just generating nonsense? Or like, what is the knowledge that they are producing? Is it can we term it as knowledge? Or is this something else that is clouding our intellect? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that there is a way in which they're producing knowledge, they're producing a, a certain sort of um, you know, gloss on what exists out there, um, you know, this kind of this uh, sort of like socially, it, it, to some extent, maybe there's a, a certain analogy, and I'd have to think through this more, but it's sort of a kind of a like knowledge, maybe version of like socially necessary labor time, right? It's like the, a kind of average uh, sort of socially produced knowledge is being kind of, um, you know, smashed together and, and um, and produced, but I think that the the risk is that 
you know, that right now it's being, it's sort of, it's slurped up all this data based on a lot of things that people have written and artists have drawn um, and created, but it's, it's also sort of the problem is that it's, it's churning out so much text, so many images that are then getting, are going to get sucked back up into the, the future versions of these. And there's been some studies recently where they've trained AI, uh, these large language models on the output of earlier iterations of large language models, and they just sort of go completely off on their own and become increasingly incomprehensible. And so I think that that there is a, a distinct risk that rather than these systems getting better, we're going to actually see them get worse and worse in this precisely the same way that I think that Google search has, has gone downhill significantly, that they've sort of um, they're losing the battle to uh, search engine optimization and people gaming the systems. Um, and we'll see AIs producing, you know, content and then sucking that back up um, and producing weirder and weirder content and, and going off, you know, sort of on their on their own. Um, there was one paper I was reading, this was a few years ago, about they had like two AIs uh, that were like talking to each other and they eventually kind of just created their own language, um, you know, that that was completely incomprehensible to, to people. And I, I think that, that maybe that's the direction that this will go rather than this sort of this fantasy of it becoming, you know, more and more accurate or anything like that. Well, if it's possible that these AI models will deteriorate, I mean, what will be the role of data pools potentially getting poisoned? I was recently reading an article about um, China's AI and how they're worried, you know, whether this worry is warranted or not, but they're worried of, you know, some some of their systems being hacked and certain data data being inputted into their data sets, which would then, I guess, skew the results or make these models not work properly. And I wonder if would that like that be a problem that could be a long run issue and that could impact a lot of different models and, and what would the the outcome of that be then? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really it it is uh, likely to become an increasingly bigger bigger problem, and I think it it sort of gets back to the ways in which a lot of these algorithms are designed basically to produce the most value rather than you know some sort of other uh, measure of knowledge is that it becomes you know this sort of this arms race uh, you know we could think about it too in terms of global competition um, that that it becomes easier to like poison your adversary's, you know, pool of data than to improve your own pool of data. And so I think there's a lot of ways in which we're, you know, where people speak about, you know, sort of crises of truth and crises of science. Um, but I think at, a, at some sort of fundamental level, they're, they're primarily crises of capitalism, that sort of capitalism is based on this kind of um, or has become, you know, informational capitalism on the extra mass extraction of, of knowledge. And I think that the ways in which knowledge production is becoming incentivized, that even aside from, you know, malicious actors, there's going to be this tendency towards these data pools becoming worse and worse and lower and lower quality um, to the point where these these systems, these algorithmic systems of, of socially averaging knowledge um, will, like you said, just become increasingly, uh, you know, worthless and, and unusable. And I, I think maybe there's there's a risk that, you know, that um, that capitalism is kind of uh, maybe at the, you know, 
maybe this is a bad analogy and maybe I should think through it more, but, but even with that said, you know, that there's sort of this kind of, uh, in the same way that capitalism has, has destroyed the physical environment, I think that we're entering a, a point where capitalism is risking destroying the sort of the informational environment in which we live in and, and sort of, you know, both poisoning it, but also this sort of what we might call like data pollution or something like that, just producing these sort of constant streams of increasingly lower quality bad data. So it essentially creates its own raison d'etre as well as its demise. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. That's a very good way to, to put it. I was actually wondering why you focus so heavily on Marx. I mean, I'm totally partial to his analysis, but what was it in Capital that made you think, okay, I can tie this to what's going on with statistical models, financialization, political economy, etc.? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think I, I've always been drawn to a, a certain kind of uh, Marxist analysis. Um, but I, I do think it's really this this idea of objectification is one that I find incredibly persuasive. Um, and, and thinking about the ways in which we let systems sort of think for us, because that's really what it, it seems to me that we're, we're doing with algorithms is, is we're sort of saying, okay, you know, we'll, we'll write this code, it, it works, and then we'll kind of just set it aside and we'll let it manage, uh, manage our affairs. So I think, I think that's really what, uh, what drew me to, to this kind of Marxist analysis. And then there's also this, um, sort of in my mind, this kind of analogy between, the ways in which value functions as this kind of metaphysical supplement, right? Like there's, you know, that we have these systems of, of producing and, and comprehending value uh, that seems kind of analogous to the way in which probability works, that it's it's not really something that actually exists in the world, but it's an incredibly powerful tool that people use to understand the world um, with, you know, with all sorts of um, consequences. And there's another thing you address uh, in the book, which is this idea of the revolutionary or political subject, because Marx speaks about this subject, this ahistorical, trans-historical subject, which is about to bring uh, bring about the revolution, essentially. And, you know, you give various examples as to why this concept doesn't always hold water. It's, you know, largely based around like a, a Western, potentially male subject, doesn't account for various forms of um, colonization or oppression that have taken place around the world where that, you know, political subject might be different and might not be determined by the same sort of historical forces that Marx speaks about. So how do we get around that problem? I mean, who is the the subject in potentially using these models for something that's more um, or less malevolent and something that's, you know, better, essentially? Is it is there no such a thing? Can we should we do away with that concept altogether of the, the revolutionary subject? Or is there another way of understanding it? Yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, I'm, uh, I, I very much appreciate Moisha Postone's analysis when he says, right, that the, the subject of capitalism is not, you know, is neither the capitalist nor the worker, but it's actually capital is the, the subject. It's what sort of makes these kind of decisions for us. And that in a lot of ways that we, you know, even though we sort of feel like we get to choose these kind of things in a lot of ways, it is these sort of these larger structures that make decisions, decisions for us, right? It's, I mean, it's exactly like we were talking about, you know, you can, you can sort of do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, you have to work in order to make money, to pay rent and, and buy bread at market and stuff like that. Um, 
And so, I, I mean, I'm not entirely opposed to the idea of, of some sort of revolutionary uh, subject, but I think what, what interests me much more is thinking about the ways that we can actually change the sort of objective conditions under which we, we you know, find ourselves so that, that these, these changes come about uh, sort of objectively, not in, uh, not in the sort of traditional understanding of objectively, but in, in this kind of Marxist understanding. Um, and so, you know, it becomes less a, a sort of a, a voluntaristic or a, a willful, um, you know, kind of sovereign decision to, to change the world, but this sort of this kind of tinkering uh, and playing with the, the sort of the social rules under which we exist to create more, sort of more uh, emancipatory potential. Um, yeah, I think that's probably a good description of, of uh, uh, how I think about these these things, that it's that it's that. But I, I find that sort of the sovereign subject to be a, a very uh, difficult and, uh, and and tricky thing for all the reasons that you that you mentioned. And, and so, sort of, the, I guess the hope of the book is maybe that there's there's this kind of this other area that we can work on these problems that that don't involve kind of uh, reimagining a, a sort of a, a traditional political subject. Well, Justin Jock, it was really great speaking to you about your book, Revolutionary Mathematics. I thought it provided a really great overview of, you know, the history of how these statistical models have been developed and how these models are currently being used in the service of capital and what might be done about it, even though obviously there's no one size fits all solution to what can be done. But I think you really illustrate how these models are often working against us and controlling us to a certain degree. And so I think just being cognizant of that fact is important in and of itself. Well, thanks so much, Talia. This has been a really fun, uh, fun conversation. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you haven't done so already, please go to our website, theanalysis.news. Consider donating to the show by hitting um, the button at the top right corner of the screen. And also like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Analysis Hyphen News, and subscribe to whatever um, podcasts you're using to, to watch this show. So please do visit us again, and I hope you enjoyed this content. See you next time.